seventh episode of Afro Historyscapes podcast, where we give you a different perspective on African history. We tell the story of African histories through objects at the Horniman Museum and Gardens in South London. These objects bring to life fascinating stories from the past. Together with the objects and histories, we open a different window into African worlds. We show how these objects continue to be used on the continent and in the diaspora in various ways. The narratives we share are based on research carried out by the Horniman's curators and community researchers. Each month we focus on a different theme, but we think another way to explore the history of Africa is through the idiom of movement. Africa is a dynamic continent that has always been on the move. If you're interested in African history, material culture and museum collections, then this is the podcast for you. We're your hosts, JC Niala and Tom Fearon, and these objects show us how the movement of people, objects and ideas from the African continent has shaped its rich history and has made an impact on the rest of the world. This week we begin on our final theme, which is about technology. Africa is a continent that has always been an early developer or adopter of technology and technological processes. From the engineering feats made possible by lost wax casting in the Kingdom of Benin, to mobile money developed in Kenya over a decade and a half ago. And this week, we'll discuss something that all of our listeners have interacted with in their life, and will likely have opinions about, even if they don't always consider how it is they have come to drink it. Milk. And to discuss the colonial history of milk, we're delighted to be joined by Johanna Zetterstrom-Sharp, one of the curators at the Horniman Museum and Gardens. Welcome, Johanna. Hello, great to be here. Which objects in the collections are related to milk, Johanna? Well, today we're going to talk about three objects from Kenya in the Horniman Museum collections. These are described in the Horniman catalogue as an arrow, number 1972.106, a gourd, 1972.82, and a fly whisk. 1972.128. You're likely to find these everyday items in any museum that has collections from Africa, except these objects are not what they seem. Not only have they been catalogued incorrectly, but they are also used in combination as part of an incredible technology developed by pastoralist communities in Kenya and elsewhere in East and Northeastern Africa to process milk, making it safe to drink. Today I want to explore how this mobile technology contrasts with European industrial milk practices which have dominated the global expansion of dairy, deeply interwoven with the colonial history of milk. Can you tell us a bit more about the three objects you've chosen? Yes, I'd love to. The gourd is much more than a drinking or storage vessel. It's used to store and ferment milk, producing what is known by Kalenjin and Ma-speaking communities in Kenya as mursik, valued for its taste and incredible nutritional properties. Musik is similar to other forms of sour dairy products, such as yoghurt or sour cream, but the addition of charcoal makes it unique. I'll tell you more about that later. The gourd is beautifully decorated with leather straps, coloured glass beads and cowrie shells. The arrow was described in the Hornman catalogue in 1972 
as being used by Samburu communities for hunting animals and in acts of violence against other people. This association of particular communities of people in Africa with violence and the misconception that because a tool could be used as a weapon, it must have served that purpose, is common in European museum records. For Ma speakers, such as Samburu or Maasai peoples, carrying spears and arrows was often misunderstood by Europeans as indicative of these communities as being inherently warlike. And when I see or read this in the archives, I often think about the inability of Europeans to disassociate our own propensity for war, weaponry and violence from the way others are imagined. Returning to our arrow, this is in fact a bleeding arrow, used for the careful and relatively painless extraction of cow's blood to fortify milk, transforming it into a sustainable, nutritious and iron-rich meal that can be both made and consumed on the move. The fly whisk, made from the hairs of a cow's tail and a wooden cane, is in fact a gourd cleaner, used to carefully apply charcoal to the inside of a gourd. Its fine hairs mean that excess charcoal can be brushed away, leaving a thin, fine layer. Yes, charcoal has been used medicinally for centuries. We always had activated and other forms of medicinal charcoal in our medicine cabinet when I was growing up. Uh, we used it for treating diarrhoea, and it also formed the base of a herbal medicine used for treating tonsillitis. Yeah, charcoal has incredible properties. These include an ability to absorb smells and tastes and to neutralize dangerous bacteria whilst allowing healthy bacteria to thrive. By using charcoal to clean the inside of a gourd, any bacteria left over from the previous batch of fermented milk is removed, and its addition to the next batch also has the effect of killing off dangerous bacteria, such as E. coli, that thrive in milk. It also speeds up the production of probiotics, or lactic acids. Lactic acids help break down lactose in the gut, easing stomach upsets that can be caused when human bodies attempt to digest this substance that was never really intended for them. It's also said to improve the taste neutralizing bitter flavors. Mm, I've seen a lot recently about activated charcoal. <laughs> yeah, the incredible properties of charcoal have obviously caught on. When researching, I even discovered a recent trend in drinking charcoal lattes. But when making mursik, not any old charcoal will do. The charcoal is made from burning sticks taken from specific trees and shrubs that have their own medicinal properties, known, for example, to cure headaches, ease coughing or improve digestion. These include African senna, Lipia kituensis and Prunus africana, or African cherry. So why is it so important to process milk in this way? That's a really good question. Processing milk is vital because whilst milk is nutritious, it's also capable of being very dangerous. I've never really thought of milk as dangerous. Can you say more about this? Yeah, sure. As an example, I'm going to transport us back in time and across to the UK for the moment. The UK is one of the world's largest consumers of cow's milk but this hasn't happened by accident. Northern Europe has a long and complicated history with the drinking of milk, but by the 19th century there was a huge rise in the public demand for milk, particularly in crowded urban centres. This demand was in response to the increased availability of milk, as well as a promotion of milk's nutritional and health benefits by medics and nutritionists of the day. It was also connected to a rising belief in the benefits of cow's milk for young children, including as a substitution for breast milk for young babies. But this proved disastrous, resulting in a significant increase in infant mortality that was eventually discovered to be as a result of E. coli bacteria in the gut causing severe diarrhoea. Deaths were particularly high during summer months and in crowded urban areas with poor sanitation. Milk doesn't travel or keep well, particularly in hot weather when dangerous bacteria thrive. And how is this managed in the UK today? 
while the crisis at the turn of the 20th century, something shared across Europe, resulted in the development of mechanised pasteurisation. Now this involves heating milk to a really high temperature to kill bacteria, and then rapidly cooling it and bottling it. But all this has to happen in a completely sterile environment, involving expensive specialised equipment. This all sounds very different to the tools needed to produce Mersic. Yeah. Although both these technologies process raw milk to make it safe to drink, they create very different products and require very different levels of industrialization. Because sanitised pasteurisation is so expensive, it lends itself to large-scale production, involving either networks of smallholder dairies, such as in Kenya, or smaller numbers of large-scale dairies, such as in the UK. In both cases, it's those companies who process and distribute milk who benefit the most financially and who control the demand for raw milk. Pasteurisation also changes the nutritional components of milk, for example, reducing healthy bacteria that assist with breaking down lactose and vitamin D. I have to say my grandmother never trusted that white milk. Well, there is a lot to mistrust. Although what we drink in those big milk cartons is advertised as pure white milk from a natural source, it is in fact a heavily manufactured product that travels great distances and undergoes huge transformation from udder to glass. But milk is also consumed in other forms, isn't it? To enable it to travel even further. For example, dried milk and evaporated milk. Yeah, that's right. Thanks, Tom. The dried milk market is huge, particularly in Nigeria, which is one of the world's biggest markets for dried milk. At the Hornwin, we actually have a number of objects made from recycled dried milk tins purchased in Lagos in the 1990s. This includes oil lamps, funnels and soap moulds for making soap. Actually, I'm going to talk about one of those moulds, 1990-544-V1. What I find fascinating is that all these moulds and funnels and oil lamps are made from a dried milk brand called Coast, produced specifically for a Nigerian market by a Dutch company called Friesland Campina, established in 1871 during the European milk boom. They have this great tagline, nourishing by nature, which is pretty contradictory given that they specialise in the industrial processing and transformation of natural milk. I have to say that slogan, nourishing by nature, reminds me of the 1970s Nestle boycott, when dried infant milk was heavily endorsed as a substitute for breast milk in regions where it can be difficult to even access clean water. Yeah, there's a long relationship between colonial health policy and the policing of women's bodies, specifically in relation to encouraging mothers to substitute their own breast milk for cow's milk. In the first half of the 20th century, as women-led movements in Britain were campaigning for access to cow's milk for their own young children, colonial health policy in the Caribbean and in parts of eastern southern Africa was instructing women to stop breastfeeding and to substitute their milk for dairy. Women are really prominent in the public conversation around milk in Britain, right from the 1700s, and they come to the fore at the turn of the 20th century, in particular around infant health. I feel there's so much more to uncover here in terms of the role white British women played in the regulation of women's rights to breastfeed their babies through colonial policy. It sounds like there's a lot to explore there. I'm drawn to the rural imagery on the coast tin. There are two large black and white cows grazing in front of a windmill. Yeah, the windmill is significant because the company is Dutch. The Netherlands has since the 19th century been one of Europe's biggest dairy markets underlined by the substantial economic growth at the time as a result of colonial Dutch trade networks through, for example, the Dutch East India Company. 
The trickle-down of wealth as a result of this often violent manipulation of global trade meant increased investment in the dairy industry at home. These iconic black and white cows are a Dutch and German dairy breed called Holstein Friesians. Breeders oversaw the development of Friesians as producers of large quantities of milk and beef, but, importantly, also due to their diet of grass, which already grew in abundance in northern European climates. It's interesting that this very Dutch image is used to market milk in Nigeria. Why might that be? Well, interestingly, it's not only the image of the Holstein Friesian that has travelled to Nigeria. At the Hornman, we have a collection of objects and photographs collected by a British family, the Brain family, who lived in Ibadan in Nigeria in the 1960s. They were there because Roger Brain, an agricultural scientist, was involved in the introduction of Frisians to Nigeria through a breeding programme aimed at increasing dairy yields based at the School of Agriculture, University of Ibadan. The 1950s and 60s saw boatloads of Frisian breeds shipped from breeders in the UK to ports across Africa as a result of the legacy of the British obsession with milk's nutritional benefits. This mass importation of cows was designed to increase the volumes of dairy produced in Africa and a belief that African cattle breeds produced a lower quality milk to European breeds. Importation of new cattle species was matched by the rolling out of aggressive pasteurisation programmes across the continent, including in Kenya, that were imagined by colonial policymakers to produce a purer, whiter, cleaner milk product to the locally processed milk, such as Mursik, the fermented milk discussed at the beginning of our conversation. Researchers have explored similar narratives in relation to Burma, now Myanmar. This work has shown how ideas relating to the way different indigenous and imported cattle species were spoken about by colonial era nutritionists and agricultural scientists maps onto a racialised language used to describe people. I think the image on the dried milk can, of fat black and white cows grazing in a clearly European landscape, reflects the continuation of this association between European cattle breeds and a purer, whiter and more nutritious kind of milk into contemporary advertising. You know, I'm, I'm curious. If British cattle breeders were trying to introduce Frisians to places like Ibadan in Nigeria, what were they eating? It's not common to see that kind of European landscape there. Well, cross-breeding programmes with indigenous cattle attempted to create new breeds that would produce larger volumes of milk but be more tolerant to heat and drought. But they still require huge amounts of cattle feed and live a very different sedentary lifestyle to the more mobile breeds that are common within pastoral communities. The success of crossbreeds and their hungry diets have relied on the transformation of huge tracts of land to introduce new crops that can be used as reliable cattle fields. This includes a reliance on expensive imported machinery and sometimes the aerial spraying of pesticides. Inconsistent levels of annual rainfall near the equator means a reliance on large-scale irrigation in drier months, pumping water from riverways and so reducing the soil nutrients and water supply for other farming communities. The levels of investment required to sustain large dairies means that the industry is monopolised by large corporations and often reliant upon investment from European and North American organisations. I'd just like to take us briefly back to where we began this conversation with the small-scale mobile technology used to process milk based on charcoal. An unfortunate consequence of this kind of industrial agriculture is that many of the medicinal plant species that are also used to create the charcoal thrive in traditional pastoral landscapes, but really struggle to germinate in over-cultivated soil. These vital plant species are, as a result, declining in number. Gosh, everything that you're talking about is so interconnected. Because I remember a programme in Kenya 
involving improving milk yield in indigenous cattle. The yield did get somewhat bigger, but then the resulting cattle became much less resistant to the sesse fly and thus sleeping sickness. It just goes to show the trouble with transplanting technologies to places that already have systems that are working perfectly well. Yeah, exactly. The history of milk and empire is one that consistently applies a northern European relationship with milk to contexts where it doesn't necessarily fit. This includes a culture of everyday milk drinking, the idea of milk as perfect nutrition. It even includes the assumptions made about how much milk people want and need, the breeds suitable for nourishing that need, and the type of landscape required to sustain it. The expansion of the dairy industry along these lines continues to dominate global agendas set by organisations like the UN, such as through the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. These goals include an emphasis on the benefits of milk for economic growth, nutrition, gender equality and combating climate change. Milk is one of the most produced commodities worldwide, amounting to 14% of global agricultural trade. As we've discussed, this affects landscapes. Within 2019 alone, over 7% of land globally had been transformed to grow crops to sustain animals bred for milk. Wow, thanks Johanna. This has certainly made me think differently about what seems like a simple glass of milk. And for me, it's answered some of the questions I didn't know I had about processed milk. I grew up on raw milk, and we always process it ourselves at home. So given all of the amazing information that you've shared with us about traditional technologies that make milk safe to drink for people who are on the move, what would you like our listeners to be left with about how they should think about milk and the way it's processed and marketed around the world? Well, for me, I think it's a question of technology and science and who gets to decide what is useful and good for us and what knowledge counts. The production of Merced uses a technology that has been developed to meet the nutritional needs of a community on the move, in a warm climate, who have their own long and established dairy culture based on principles of nutrition, hygiene, health and taste. And yet the global narrative and direction of milk is one that continues to be dominated by a northern European relationship with and history of dairy, including the nutritional needs and technological solutions that were developed in response. This disregard for science and technology developed in response to people's understanding of their own environment, its resources and how to use them to live well not only continues to embed inequality, but it also destroys landscapes by trying to fit them into a mould that was not designed for them. That's a really powerful message to leave us with, Johanna. That technology works best when it's developed with and is part of the environment that it will be used in. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Afro Historyscapes. With me, JC Niala, Tom Fearon, and Johanna Zetterstrom Sharp. Join us next week as we discuss with community action researcher Chinello Njaka as we talk about the crafts captured in the Nancy Stanfield collection, namely spinning cotton, wool use, and some of the textiles. The Nancy Stanfield collections has turned out to be immensely popular. Their collection of photographs, taken by Nancy Stanfield, who was a British teacher in Nigeria, around the time Nigeria got independence in the 1960s. And many community action researchers have worked with them in different ways. And Chinello's work on makers and their technological processes is a way that fits nicely with our current theme of technology. This is Afro Historyscapes. Always something new. Always has been. Always on the move. Hey. Hey.
Lele, 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 ma. 